Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind the headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Nathan Connolly. Each week, Joanne, Ed, our colleague Brian Ballow, and I, all historians, take one topic and explore it through three centuries of American history. And today we're looking at the history of privacy in the United States. And Ed, Nathan, we're going to start things off with a somewhat odd political controversy. Unlike many dust-ups involving politicians, this one wasn't about bribery or money laundering or an extramarital affair. Instead, it had to do with something that elected officials are supposed to do, vote. All right, there have been a number of uh, media reports, as you both know, uh, on voting and who voted uh, for which uh, president and what year it happened to be in. This is audio from a 2014 Senate debate in Kentucky. The incumbent, Republican Senator Mitch McConnell, sat across from his Democratic challenger, Allison Lundergan Grime. So what's the controversy here? Let me guess. Mitch McConnell secretly voted for Obama, right? Not as far as we know. That would be a secret. Okay, okay. The big issue in the race was that Grimes refused to say who she voted for in the 2012 presidential election. Why are you reluctant to give an answer on whether or not you voted for President Obama? This is a matter of principle. Our Constitution uh, grants uh, here in Kentucky uh, the constitutional right for privacy at the ballot box for a secret ballot. You have that right. Senator McConnell has that right. Every Kentuckian has that right. And of course, it's not just Kentuckians, but every American who has that right. We assume our votes are private and nobody's business. But the right to privacy around voting is actually a relatively recent development. American voters in the 18th and 19th century certainly enjoyed no such right, nor would they have expected it. Back then, there were no secret ballots or even voting booths. Which brings us back to our friends in the bluegrass state of Kentucky. It's about the last state where what they had was what was called viva voce voting. This is historian Mark Summers. Viva voce means saying your vote out loud, usually in front of a judge or other public officials. It was a common way to vote in much of the South during the 18th century. But Summers says viva voce voting lasted in Kentucky much longer. As a matter of fact, it lasted until 1891. And it's pretty hard to imagine a less private way to vote. You go up and you swear in your name and you announce who you're going to vote for, for an office. This is about as public as anything can be, considering the fact that everybody else in the room can hear exactly how you vote. And, you know, often the whole town would be gathered to hear you cast your vote. So your family would be there, your friends would be there, your clergyman, your boss. Sometimes even the candidates would show up. In Virginia, in in the colonial period, for example, you'd have the several candidates for the office. They'd be sitting up there on the platform. You'd have everybody gathered together, and each person would rise and say, I vote for George Washington. And George Washington would would then get up and say, Mr. Saunders, this is an honor that I shall treasure all of my (laughs) life. And then another person would vote, and the other candidate would say, well, you know, Mr. Smithers, this is a great honor for me, and I thank you for your trust and confidence. That sounds kind of pleasant and civilized to me. What's the problem, Joanne? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's true, because I think probably most people would feel okay about standing up and in front of the public saying, yes, I'm voting for the great George Washington. And have him treasure that the rest of his life. I'd love that. I know. I would treasure the moment George Washington (laughs) treasured my vote. It's true. All of that sounds genteel. Nothing really controversial there. But what if your choice was someone less popular? In that case, voting could be a risky business. 
if you vote in a way that is against everybody else, you're going to have a lot of people that don't like you very much. Maybe they won't uh, buy at your store or maybe they'll be your landlord out there and uh, you'll no longer be allowed to be a tenant farmer on their estate. The fact of the matter is the moment you speak out loud how you're voting, if you go against the sense of the community or if you mm-hmm. go against the sense of the property people in that community, you're going to be paying for that vote. The right to privacy is not a formal right enshrined in the Constitution, but it's something that most Americans expect, even in public places like the ballot box and the checkout aisle. The issue has been back in the news. In April, President Trump undid privacy rules that kept companies from selling our personal information, even our browsing history, to advertisers and other third parties. So today on the show, we're looking at the tangled history of privacy in America. We'll explore how much privacy Americans had in the 18th and 19th century. We'll also talk about a campaign in the 1950s to root out gay and lesbian government workers. And we'll get a glimpse of life in a prison where inmates are watched 24-7. But first, I want to return to my conversation with historian Mark Summers. He says there was no privacy or secrecy in voting through much of American history, especially in the late 19th century. And let me tell you, <laughs> that was a cutthroat time in politics if there ever was one. Yeah, now voter turnout was an all-time high, often above 80 percent. But so was election corruption. And both parties thought nothing of borrowing the names of a few dead voters or buying a few votes from the living. Mark Summers says much of the era's rampant corruption was fueled by the lack of privacy at the voting booth. Now, by the 1870s and 80s, Most American men would have voted with a paper ballot instead of the viva voce system we heard about earlier. But that didn't make their vote much more private than saying their vote out loud. Friends and neighbors and most of all, the local party boss knew exactly how you voted. Well, the trick to it is that the ballots are printed off by the political parties. And that means that each party is going to print off a ballot only with its candidates' names on it. Now, you may say, well, you know, if you got a paper ballot and you fold it up, how are people going to know which party it belongs to? (laughs) Oh, there's all kinds of ways you can make that work. Uh, For example, (laughs) you can do your ballots on very thin paper, which means that the print can be seen through it. Or you could do it another way. You can print it on pink paper or blue paper. And the effect is that uh, you can tell immediately what ballot goes in the box because you've got poll watchers put out by the parties and however you're going to vote, they're going to know it. And politicians and people that work regularly for a political party, they love this kind of ballot because there's so many ways that you can make this ballot work for you or against the other guy. Endless forms of corruption, and it sounds like by depriving people or actually never giving them, I suppose, the ability to vote in private, they also thus have no no control, right? Lack of privacy equals lack of control over their vote. Mm -hmm. If you vote in public, it's going to often mean that the entire vote in your town is going to be skewed. If you have, say, a factory, uh, say in Connecticut, I don't know, making watches or something like that, and the employer is a Republican, 
he's probably going to station an agent at the precincts to check off the names of employees in the factory when they come to vote. And he's going to be looking very closely at what kind of ballot they are holding folded in their hands. Maybe these guys will still vote against his interest. Maybe they'll still vote Democratic. But it's a very intimidating factor. And there is nothing to keep that from happening. So then what happens? How does how does this end up changing? Well, sometime in the 1850s in New South Wales, which is one of the provinces in Australia today, they propose a genuine secret ballot. It's a ballot that would be drawn up by the state. You go up to the polling place and there you will be handed a paper ballot that lists the various candidates. And then you send them to the voting booth and they are given three minutes, usually once they pulled the curtains to mark their ballot and then to come back with the ballot folded and put it into the ballot box. So there is a booth, there is a curtain. There is a booth and there is a box with a slot in it that you put the ballot in. That's right. Right, right. And by the 1880s, reformers are saying that this so-called Australian ballot is what we need to have in this country. It isn't getting much of anywhere until 1888. And in 1888, all at once, an enormous scandal changes the whole mix. The sitting president, Grover Cleveland, a Democratic candidate for president, runs for another term. He gets more votes than the Republicans do. But when the votes come in, he loses the two key states in the North he needs the most. And that's New York and that's Indiana. And without them, he loses the Electoral College. Well, the Democrats know that this election has been stolen from them. They know it because in in Indiana, a political operative on the Republican side had written a letter to the local leaders of the party saying, once you've bought voters, you want to make sure they get to the polls and they vote the way you want them. So you marched them to the polls under reliable people in blocks of five. And when Indiana goes for the Republicans, that's exactly why it goes, the Democrats say. They have been stolen out of this election. And all at once, the Democrats want to change the laws. They want to change them to create an Australian ballot. Mm. Well, the Republicans actually, in a lot of states, began to decide that maybe this is a good idea for them too. Because they know that when the next presidential election comes, the Democrats are going to do payback and they're gathering the money. And this time they're going to be the ones buying the voters and they're going to buy them and buy them big. And if you Mm -hmm. don't want that to happen, what you want to do is create a secret ballot. Wow. So one wants the story to be, well, they realized how corrupt it was. And so they aimed to do something more virtuous. And obviously that's not what's going on, but it's really a new way to manipulate privacy to maintain control of the vote. Oh, yeah. But even once you get a secret ballot, there's all kinds of ways of, well, shall we say, skewing it in your direction. You want to keep buying voters? One way you can do it is you have clauses in the secret ballot bill that help out people that are relatively illiterate. You allow them to bring, oh, shall we say, a helper into the voting booth with them to help them find the candidates they want. Help in in big quotation marks. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you got the guy that's just bought the voter. He gets to go in behind that curtain and he gets to mark the ballot for them. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a great way to work? <laughs> it's, charming. it's charming. Oh, yeah. 
And it's also a way of looking clean while keeping as many of the advantages of playing dirty as you possibly can. Yeah. That's one reason why in the South, the moment you get a secret ballot through, that's going to add to the determination to keep blacks from voting under any circumstances. So you're going to create all kinds of literacy tests and understanding clauses because the moment you've got a secret ballot, you can't control mm -hmm. them anymore. If they show up at the polls, you've got no way of making them vote for your side. So in many ways, the coming of the secret ballot really helps further on the creation of a virulently, violently Jim Crow mm -hmm. South. Mm -hmm. No, that makes perfect sad sense is what that makes. It's very yeah. sad sense, but it is wow. sense, yes. So this is a this is a story of corruption upon corruption and manipulation upon manipulation. Ooh, I mean, is yes. this <laughs> uh, I mean, is there a positive legacy of of this evolution of voting? Oh, yes. The voters' uh, experience in voting, if they've got privacy, is going to be different. Senator from Pennsylvania, name is Simon Cameron. He's one of the great crooks of the world. <laughs> Simon Cameron once defined an honest man. He said, an honest man is one who, once he's bought, stays bought. Well, see, that's the problem. Once you've got a secret ballot and they go behind that curtain, mm -hmm. you don't know whether they're going to stay bought. You can choose a Republican for governor. You can choose a uh, a Democrat for congressman. You can choose a prohibitionist for state assemblyman, and nobody's going to know. Mm. And as they begin to split their ballots, they begin to pick who they think is the best candidate. All at once, persuading voters becomes a lot more important than it was before. Mm. Because before the secret ballot, you're only trying to get your guys to the polls. You're not trying to convince the guys on the other side to go for you. Mm -hmm. But now, because there's a lot of people that might go for you or they might go for some of the offices, but not all of the offices, you're really going to have to sell yourself. You're going to have to say, this is what I can give you if you vote for me. So in many ways, that secret ballot makes things an awful lot better than they were before. Right. Obviously a big plus. Oh, very. So when you're enabled to vote in private... You're mm -hmm. able to vote your conscience. That's right. You're able, if you want to, to split the ballot, and thus you need to be persuaded. All of those things, mm -hmm. even with all the corruption there, all of those things, that's a major upswing. Does an awful lot yeah. to end the bribery and intimidation at the polls. You can't change it in every way. But the fact is, the secret ballot doesn't come about because the reformers persuade Americans to do it. Yeah, well, so it is always, uh, I mean, public or private, it's always two-sided. It's always positive and negative, and there's always room and there's always ability for manipulation and corruption one way or another. Well, it's it's another way of saying there there's almost never any such thing as a complete victory. Right. Uh, that's really what it comes to. Not for the good guys, not for reform. And every reform comes at some kind of price. Right. But privacy and voting, all of our history shows, is absolutely essential because the moment you stop making it private, you basically paint a nice big target sign on yourself. Mark Summers is a historian at the University of Kentucky and author of Party Games, Getting, Keeping, and Using Power in Gilded Age Politics. 